Crikey, we've started way too late. Okay, let's get this show on the roads. Ladies and gentlemen, we welcome you here to the 100th episode of the NK News podcast. And today, I'm happy to be joined here in the studio by almost everybody who works for NK News. Unfortunately, with the exception of Rachel Minyong Lee and Jihae Park, or Park Jihae, and Dag Yong Ji, all three of which could not be here, which makes this a completely 100% mannel. We don't like mantles at NK News. We're sorry, audience. We don't like mantles. We really would like to have had all of our female colleagues here today, but... They had other things to do. Uh, better things to do, perhaps, <laughs> yes. Uh, so let's see who is here. Let's do a quick roll call, starting to my left. My name is Arias Dare. I'm the producer for NK News. Uh, Chad O'Carroll, I'm the founder of the website. Uh, Oliver Hotham, I'm managing editor. Colin Zorko, I am a writer, reporter, based in Seoul. James Fretwell, assistant editor. Peter Ward, contributing analyst. Andrea Lankov, uh, director of research and contributor. Fantastic, and I'm so glad you could all be here today. This is uh, uh, truly 100 episodes. I didn't know it would come this fast. I mean, we, uh, we began this podcast in February last year. We've been pushing it out basically weekly with the occasion when uh, you know, we have had uh, some times when we've put out two episodes a week um, when with breaking news specials and, of course, the recent summer series on the 1989 World Festival of Youth and Students. Uh, so here we are, episode 100. It's not really 100, though, is it? Because the last week's episode, the one on the uh, the Pongsu, uh, my interview with uh, Richard Baker of the Age newspaper, that was, strictly speaking, episode number 100, but we had to rename it something funny, so this would be number 100. So I've just come back from two weeks' vacation in the Netherlands, which is why I was not the host of uh, the most recent Roundtable podcast. Uh, what's happened while I was away? It seems that uh, times have been busy up in the north. Kim Jong-un rode a horse. There was a football match uh, or soccer for those of you outside uh, Great Britain and Europe. And, of course, there was that uh, the, the, the talks in Stockholm that broke down, uh, which you all talked about last week in my absence. What about this Kim Jong-un and a horse thing? What do you think? Uh, well, uh, what was interesting, what he said after he had a horse riding. Well, but... First of all, he went to back to Sun, uh, which is not exceptional, but it seems that it has it's, he hasn't been there for about a year. Well, did he ride all the way up from the bottom to the top? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm a bit skeptical, uh, but um, of course, it's another way to remind about the glorious past of the Kim family, because he was dressed in a kind of imitation of a uniform they were supposed to use when they were allegedly fighting the Japanese in this area. Actually, they never done. They never, I mean, they never were fighting, have never been fighting Japanese in this area. Uh, it's a later invention. Uh, they did fight in Manchuria, but not near Pakistan. Having said that, uh, what is more important is Fioski's message that, you know, I'm a, gr- a grandson of my grandfather. References to self-reliance in the speech, which is extremely important when chances of getting sanctions removed, look increasingly remote, and they are, for some basic subsistence, relying on China. Uh, and seemingly, Chinese are providing them with enough food and enough fuel to avoid a major disaster, but hardly much more. 
just subsistence level. Uh, so it's quite logical that he's talking about self-reliance. Uh, but for me, what was most important is the warning that, you know, irritation of the Korean people about enactment, inaction of the Americans, which means that Americans' unwillingness to do something about sanctions is going to transform into fury. Uh, which is angst, or whichever punno he said, uh, which for me sounds like a confirmation of the deadline, uh, which was mentioned first time in spring, uh, that they are going to wait until the end of the year, and if Americans do not provide them with sanctions relief, they will do something dramatic, and for me, a launch of a nice ICBM maybe even splashing waters near Guam or California mm. will be a very good expression of the fury the North Korean people is feeling now, according to Comrade Kim Jong-un. Or a nice thermonuclear test will do the trick as well. And we also right. had direct reference to that. The, the state media coverage said that all of the officials present were convinced that the country was going to make this bold move yeah. that would um, inspire confidence in the Korean Revolution. The bold, I think it was the boldest move ever seen in the Korean Revolution. Yeah, certainly a sign that things are going to change, whether or not um, that's an ICBM test or a nuclear test. Um, I guess we'll have to find out. Yeah, I was looking for that sentence, so thank you for quoting that, Oliver. Um, it, it does seem like one of those things uh, that, as we've already hinted at, that you know we don't know what's going to happen, but when it happens, we'll be able to look back with 2020 hindsight and say, ah, so that's what Kim Jong-un was talking, or that's what state media was talking about the day after Kim Jong-un's horse ride up uh, out Mount Pektu. Um, one of the things that we've seen in the uh, the Twitterscape or Twitterverse, whatever one calls it these days, is a lot of people have been posting photographs of other men riding horses Sorry, and drawing what, what, comparisons. Can I interject? Yes. Do you have a Twitter account, Jacko? No, I do not. Uh, will we be seeing you on Twitter soon? I think there's a lot of demand for it. Uh, is there? I've not received a single email from a listener to this podcast saying, Jacko, we need you on Twitter. <laughs> the people as one are petitioning for their great leader to join Twitter. Are they clamoring for it? They are clamoring. There's a popular clamor. Let them clamor. I say. Uh, no, but uh, seriously, there, there have been a lot of pictures posted of other men on horseback. Um, of course, Mr. Putin on horseback. Kim Il-sung famously rode that white horse that's used in a lot of uh, North Korean um, portrait paintings. Um, Kim Jong-il, Ko Young-hee, uh, famously now, of course, uh, on horseback with Kim Jong-il. And the, uh, there's also a, a Korean king who, I think someone on Twitter mistook him for Tangun, but it was another historical Korean king who was seen on horseback. Kwangito, maybe? Yeah, I think it was yeah, maybe Kwangito. Um, what's the significance of a, a leader riding on horseback? Or is it simply that Kim Jong-un wants to hark back to his grandfather? Anyone? Am I, am I missing some symbolism that isn't there? or you know? I, I, I don't see much symbolism. For me, all kind of presentation was to emphasize the revolutionary slash guerrilla origin of the family because of the dress, of the horses. Uh, once again, talking about what was actually happening in the 1930s, we have very good reasons to be skeptical about guerrillas riding horses. Not not the best way, actually, for their kind of operations. I but think if you're trying to keep a low profile in a in a guerrilla war against yes, a powerful empire, you're not going to be riding around on horses. Yeah, and terrain, can... terrain is also not very mm. good for riding horses the... because they were in forests largely. Unless the horses can move at warp speed, you know, and that's the... Uh... Well, there is this thing that I've been reading about in some recent North Korean comic books, this... Uh... Uh, what is it called? Chukchi Bop, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, this literal power 
to uh, shrink space. Like uh, the uh, the general uses warp. I think is how it's usually translated. <laughs> the, the, the origin of that is a poem by Chogi Chan from like 1946. Yes, super or early, very very early in the piece, 1946. But it's literally like in, in a comic book published just last year. Uh, this theme is used in several stories, not just for Kim Il Sung, but also for Kim Jong Il. There's a story, for example, of uh, Kim Jong Il appearing on Mount Hallasan, which we all know as a uh, a mountain on Jeju Island, in 1995. Appearing on Mount Hallasan and curing the blindness of a South Korean man, almost Jesus-like. So they don't. Uh, so when I was there, I asked people about this, and they said that it's a metaphor. It's not lit- people don't literally believe it, except in the, the kids who are reading these comic books, who are supposed to literally believe that a man was cured of blindness after you know seeing a. Uh, Sort of a what do you call it a a, a, tra- a transfiguration mm. of, uh, of of the Christ-like uh, Kim Jong Il on Hallasan. It wasn't a mirage. He was really there. I don't, I, I don't think that adult North Koreans are supposed to believe that uh, Kim Jong Il actually travelled at warp speed to Hallasan yeah. to cure the blind and then come back. Maybe, maybe adults are not meant to believe that. I'm just saying that perhaps that it could be the North Korean uh, equivalent of a uh, a Father Christmas myth that you know it's okay for the kids, but when you you know when you become a um, a member of the Red Brigade, eventually it's educated out of you. Well, I was always shocked being uh, raised as a Christian and learning about hell to discover in my 20s that it was all supposed to be a metaphor. So That's so, heresy. So I, I have a question maybe maybe for Chad because you know, you, you've been covering this space for a, a very long time. And something that I, I, I've talked about this with Oliver and Peter and in Korean media, I find there's a, there's a lack of, of incredulity about the way that North Korea frames certain messages, the words that they use. It, it seems that they take it very seriously when, as uh, Professor Lankoff just pointed out, this is very much for internal consumption. It's very much to show kind of internal cohesion between the three different Kims. And, you know, we have this kind of straight line. You're riding a horse doesn't necessarily mean this great strategic play. Rather, it's simply a guy riding a horse. You don't have to look much deeper than that. But in the Korean media, you have these talking heads that go on TV. They go on Yonhap TV. They go on Chosun TV. And it's just like, this This is going to tell us what comes next. So when you guys are covering this, how do you separate this KCNA image from this KCNA image and decide you know, this is meaningful and this is just uh, you know some picture of Kim Jong-un touring a factory? Well, I think we need Min Young to answer that, really. It's her speciality. But one thing... That- that was interesting about this uh, horse imagery was that cold noodle fan the twitter username that we is, have that, is that still around it's still around oh it's still around absolutely uh, the twitter username that colin wrote a lot about who we believe is basically in or affiliated to north korea and basically parrots kcna whenever leadership issues come up it was really interesting because cold noodle fan meant actually mentioned this line that Kim Jong-un went there to, uh, you know, have, sort of have a think about what his next strategic play might be, which Min Young, I, I believe she pointed out that that he hasn't actually been there that many times before mm-hmm. making strategic decisions. And that seems to have been something that, that South Korean media and, mm. and Western media have kind of uh, decided upon themselves is the case when he goes to Samjion. Min Young's point is that's not Pektusan. Well, isn't that the, the, the crater, the, the lake in the crater on the top of Pektusan? Lake, isn't that Lake Chon? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the Lake of Heaven. Yeah. So the point being that, that Kim Jong-un has been to Pektu, the Samjion, which is the nearest town, village, to Pektusan several times before things which have subsequently turned out to be big news, like uh, Chang Song Tech being executed. 
but and, uh, and the murder of Kim Jong Nam was that mentioned too in that regard? I don't I don't know. Um, I think that was mentioned in South Korean media, but no, on the Twitter feed, which I don't read. So cold, cold doodle fans Twitter feed. She talking about the murder of Kim Jong Nam? Well, no, 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 no. Somebody commenting on that. Speaking of a cold noodle fan, somebody who's not here, who I won't name, uh, is feels seventy five percent sure that cold noodle fan is actually the Twitter account of a uh, a tour company um, that goes into North Korea. Really? Uh, namely, shall I say it? Who it is? Why not? YPT. So, I, uh, I I would be surprised hmm. because of the access to photos. Colin, do you want to explain a little bit? It's... We don't know who runs the account. All mm. we know for a fact is that they have access to a kind of domestic state media company called Sogwang. Whoever is running this account has access to their photos and post them before the mm. Sogwang website does in higher quality. So it could be anyone as long as they are they have signed up to work with that company. It could now, be a tour company, I guess, but I mean mm. that would be that would be quite Interesting. <laughs> if it does turn out to be a Twitter account that's run by uh, an agency of the North Korean government, that would certainly be uh, an interesting challenge to the narrative of hopefully a fan of this podcast, uh, Twitter account Core Counterprop, who <laughs> believes that uh, Cold Noodle Fan is actually run by imperialist Westerners and uh, is um, you know racially essentialist and anti-DPRK. Okay, I, w- I would say we, we know for a fact that this Cold Noodle Fan is working with a North Korean media company, but the person running it, we've no idea who they are. They're probably a foreigner, maybe maybe a North Korean. My sense is they're in Pyongyang. That's that's just okay. my straight up sense. If I can if I can return to the horse, <laughs> please, um, if possible. I think there's there's often this idea that the North Koreans are completely unaware of how the outside world reacts to these types of images there's this idea well the north koreans are so naive they think that they think that the western world the rest of the world will just you know think these are silly and stuff but let's just reiterate this that this these pictures of kim jong-un on this white horse have, have gone completely viral they're all over the internet millions of people are talking about them i can say confidently that our story on this uh mm. on this visit was one of our most widely read uh, this month i think the north koreans are aware that are aware that if they Put this kind of stuff out; it's going to get a lot of attention. I think that's part of the strategy there. We've, I've, when I was in North Korea, I once uh, I had an interesting chat with a guy who was who had friends who were working as translators for the KCNA, and he said that they will often use, say, a slightly antiquated phrase or, or phrase things in a certain way because they know it'll get a lot of attention in the West. Mm. So maybe they're aware that perhaps the photos might come across as ridiculous, but they know it'll get a lot of traction. And I think, regardless, we all opened our phones on Wednesday, I think it was, saw those photos and went, well, bloody hell, this does mean something, right? Mm. So, Meanwhile, the president of Turkmenistan posts pictures of him on yeah. a horse every day and he doesn't get the kind of traction, so... <laughs> he doesn't he have nuclear, nuclear weapons. weapons. Yeah. Yeah. I want to just follow up on what Oliver uh, said and, and uh, just point out the irony here that back in the 1980s and even in the 1990s, the North Korean government spent countless uh, large amounts of money putting full-page ads in, for example, the New York Times and other uh, you know, broadsheet newspapers to try to get people interested in Kim Jong-il, you know, calling him the lodestar of the 21st century, etc., etc., uh, most of which was a complete waste of money uh, and didn't sell any books. But now they're getting that kind of interest that they've been wanting for decades for free simply by posting some images of uh, Kim Jong-un on a horseback. But are they, are they selling books off of it? Was well, my no, question. Is, but is that, is that what they want? There is a major difference. Please. Nuclear weapons. It's a major reason why we are interested in 
comical or not so comical picture of Kim Jong-un riding a horse and we are not interested in Turkmenistan president who is riding a horse or showing his officers how to shoot handguns while riding a, a yes a bicycle <laughs> nobody noticed because Turkmenistan has no nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons is pain and frankly let's face it i just had a sort of minor argument with slightly snobbish my former student who wanted to show his superiority to myself telling that i'm doing some kind of politics while he's a real scholar and he's doing history research and i said nuclear weapons is what paying for your grant which is paying your salary and he said i have nothing to do with nuclear weapons i pure history and real scholar and i said Yes, but nobody would give, would pay you salary. Have you been studying a country without nuclear weapons? Peter, and Peter the same I think he say, just threw some shade on you. It has nothing to do with me. I'm not a historian, although I do love history. So wait, what are we going to do when they denuclearize? Inevitably. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> Chad, Andre has just raised a very interesting question. And I'm going to throw this as a question to you. First of all, in what year did you found NK News? 2010. Do you think that if you had tried to found a, an NK News service back in 2005, the year before the first North Korean nuclear test, that it would have gone anywhere? Uh, only if Kim Jong-il had died earlier, because hmm. frankly speaking, go, zooming back to 2010, I remember I was about to abandon the website in November 2011. Just a month before. Yeah, yeah. I was really like just done with it. It wasn't really going anywhere. And then Kim Jong-il died and I thought, oh, hang on a minute. So that was the the big Philip that's sort of the boost that the yeah, website I thought, needed. I thought, you know, that this is actually an important time to be doing something like this. Mm. And the DPRK is going to go through a lot of changes. And it did in many ways, but not quite the same ways as some pundits expected yeah. uh, with collapse and so forth but um, no names mentioned <laughs> I, I think the nuclear thing definitely I mean if we were doing Eritrea news.org or Turkmenistan news.org I dare say not many people will be listening to this podcast now and we probably wouldn't have a vibrant business model. Mm. Yes, I would completely agree. All uh, North Korea studies industry is possible only because North Korea have nuclear weapons. Let's not forget that size of economy or size of population, North Korea has equivalents like Mozambique or Ga I, think sorry, it's, Madagascar. I think it's Cote d'Ivoire. Yes. yes, something like that. Uh, none, none of this country is considered to be important enough to pay for just one tenure professor position. What about just being juxtaposed to the success of South Korea? I think that always drew uh, interest anyway. Not much, not much. Well, there are countries which are doing well. There are countries which are not doing well. Maybe somebody on the far right or not far right, just right, will be happy about it and will use it occasionally. Maybe some people on the extreme left will be looking for plausible justification yet another, of yet another strange case of collapse of the state economy. Surprise, surprise. Uh, having said that... Get a sense, even without the nuclear weapons, Peter Ward would still be interested. <laughs> I, I'd still yes, be studying yes, their contract yes, system. Well, I, I'd still be fascinated too, but I, I think to pick up from Colin's idea that uh, what... I mean, where is... Um, where's Canada's studies? You know, uh, as a sort of a counterpoint to... Um, you know, comparing it to the United States, where there isn't one, and uh, no, it's about, it's about you know, a point. Well, yeah, but you know, had the history of North America gone a different way, parts of Canada could have been parts of America, or vice versa, or it could have all been one country. Well, what, hold on, James, James, you're studying this neck of the woods. 
you're young lad from the UK. <laughs> you're learning the language. Why on earth? James is up and coming. What drove you to it? Is it the nuclear weapons? It wasn't the nuclear weapons, actually. It was around 2014, just before I graduated. There was there were a bunch of documentaries coming out about North mm. Korea on YouTube. And that was also, of course, around the time that the movie The Interview came out. Oh, yeah. And there was a big controversy around how that was offending um, the dignity of, of Kim Jong-un. So I think for me, that, that just struck me as totally strange and bizarre. And it was only after that that I started reading more in-depth about North Korea. So I think it was actually the, uh, the strangeness of the country, of the cult of personality that drew me in personally. Well, for me, it was the, it was the news. Like so, uh, you know, as now I study North Korea, the North Korean economy, uh, and I'm fascinated by it endlessly. For me, the, it started with the nukes. The nukes were the, my lead-in, and I think they're a lead-in for a lot of people. The nukes are what get uh, what, get North Korea onto the front page of global of the global news, right? So it can start with the nukes, but for a lot of people, it may start there and it may not stay there. People but, aren't, you know, a lot of people. Uh, so, to put it into uh, sort of tests. marketing terms, our nuclear weapons, North Korea's loss leader. You know, it's a big expense that gets people in. Yes, yes, I would say so. Uh, because even when people say that they are interested in North Korea because of something completely unrelated to nukes, well, documentaries about North Korea, mm-hmm. they were possible because there was a massive interest. And massive interest was because of successful ICBM launches and nuclear program. Right. I mean, Without it, how many interesting documentaries have you seen about Turkmenistan which or, or may, Eritrea or Eritrea which judging by what little is known are probably more extreme cases in some regards than North Korea or roughly the same league well I, I would say that I, I think Zimbabwe could certainly a good case uh that they could ha- there could be easily, uh, you know, when Mugabe was still in charge, there could have been 10 documentaries a year just about uh, Zimbabwe, but they weren't, and there's no language barrier, well, and I, there's no language barrier. Well. Well, okay, not everybody in, in Zimbabwe speaks English like Robert Mugabe did. But a lot of Zimbabweans do speak yeah, English. Yeah. I would say the cultural uh, aspects, the the, to- the totalitarianism, that ropes people in. It roped me in. It ropes a lot of people that I talk to. Uh, Professor Lankov is right that the kind of industry is um, fueled by interest in security. Mm. But a lot of people would be willing to watch more about Turkmenistan or about uh, Eritrea a few years ago before that. Anything with a cult of personality, a totalitarian state, that is interesting in the extreme. Question is who is going to pay it? Yeah, well, of course, it's, but so practical, so practical. Yes. So, uh, bringing it back to money. Yeah. You have jobs. With North Korea, you have some jobs. Right. Not many. Uh, quite few, actually, outside South Korea, but it's still some. And nothing would generate jobs is Eritrea. Well, all they need is to convince uh a funder at Netflix uh, to fund a documentary on something super niche mm. and well, then we'll get our Turkmenistan documentary. Yeah, sure. I will. Let me just jump in on the financial aspect. I remember when I when I started with NK News back in 2013. And why did you? Oh, well, that's that's a whole separate story if <laughs> you want to. Um, <laughs> is the is there a woman involved? <laughs> no, there was no woman involved. I, I got involved in NK News because um, I was interested in North Korea as a someone who was studying the history of communism ah. and someone who was studying the USSR and Stalinism. And then I got interested in a certain Romanian leader called Mr. Ceausescu. Yeah, Nikolai, who and, uh, based himself on, modeled himself well, on Kim Il-sung, didn't he? And then one uh, course I did on, on uh, 
communist leaders. I was reading about Mr. Ceausescu. I had to write an essay about the origins of his cult of personality. And I was on YouTube one day and I discovered a, a fantastic video of Ceausescu's visit to Pyongyang. I think it was in 1971. Yeah. Ah, uh, with the people on the streets. Which, which many Romanians have, have cited as the beginning of Ceausescu's megalomania. And then I was also simultaneously becoming very bored with having tried to get into political journalism in Britain and become slightly jaded by that. And then I became interested in North Korea. Then an internship opportunity popped up with Chad. Um, as far as I remember, I was one of only two people that actually <laughs> applied for the job. Good heaven. What year was that in? That was 2013. So if, they were, if you were putting that up now, there'd be definitely many. I think there'd be more than 20. Yeah. This was in London, bear in mind. Oh, fair enough. Um, this was an opportunity for an internship in a, in a basement in London. Though I didn't know it at the time because I remember when I had my first interview with Chad, I imagined it <laughs> was a bustling newsroom with... <laughs> TVs and, and... And who was your intern mate? Oh, his name was Hamish McDonald. Shout out. Uh, Hamish shout out. <laughs> shout out. Uh, he's no longer with us, unfortunately. Um, he's not, he's, he hasn't died. He hasn't died. Yeah. <laughs> you make it sound like he's dead. <laughs> Jeez. Holly. Sorry to Hamish if you're listening. Oh, they killed Hamish. I, I killed it only. There could be only one. Uh, <laughs> no, so... Well, but only then, one Kenobi. Back to... And then, but then we were exploring a lot of back then we were exploring a lot of um, different models for how the website could work right and at the time there was a lot of did we have a paywall back then we had a paywall back then but there was a lot of discussion around the future of media this was back when the New York Times was supposedly on the brink of bankruptcy and that had created a kind of existential crisis in the media industry about mm. well if the New York Times is on the verge of bankruptcy how can we possibly have right. a future as journalists and then Trump people, became a serious presidential candidate and then, saved right, media and, and for saved all. the media industry. But at the time, the model that a lot of people were talking about was the advertising model mm. of high traffic, high advertising. Which um, we did things, try for a little Which bit. we did try for a, a bit. But the, I think the fate of a lot of news organizations that base themselves on that model, I would say BuzzFeed <clears> would be one of them. Vice would be another one. Upworthy. Upworthy, yeah. Um, that They seem to have... Um, yeah, they seem to have died and uh, we're still here. So I think the benefit of the paywall system is really uh, demonstrated. Well, it's also so. the benefit of specializing, right? right? Because if you do uh-huh. general news, you can't add much value. But if you specialize, I mean, if you look around the uh, the people in this office, I do wish our um, female colleagues oh, yeah. were with us today. But uh, you add all uh, the expertise up just in this room alone, it would be several decades. And that's got value. And people will pay for valuable insights and uh, specialist, specialist journalism so I think it works as a model and um, we've always wondered could it be expanded to other countries and we did get an offer of investment back in 2015 to do a Cuba news oh. uh, this was uh, I went to the Cuba Opportunity Conference in New York City in 2015 at the NASDAQ Center in Good Times God. Square uh, there was a guy uh, ready to put down 100k was you know just to just to get something started because if you recall that was when obama signed that deal to um and i remember we i talked to dr lankov about it um oliver was already doing some advanced copy we had a mini website up and i'm very glad we didn't do it because in retrospect cuba didn't go very well Mm. Uh, it didn't open up in the way that people were expecting in 2015 2016 and we 
It well, wasn't in Cuba's defense. Uh, a, a certain president came <laughs> along and tore up every deal that the U.S. had made. These New York investors need to invest in the Cuban nuclear program. I think. Oh dear. <laughs> uh, I'd like to just interject. It's 1962 oh, all over again. Uh, can I just interject with a uh, an encouragement to listeners to this podcast to consider buying a subscription? I do get emails literally every week from people listening to podcasts saying, "Jacko, how can I support this podcast? This wonderful work that you're doing." And the answer is simple: go on to nknews.org and buy yourself a subscription to the website. You can get $50 off your first year subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. And that's really, that's the, the best way to, uh, to support all of us sitting around this table, here, as well as our female colleagues who are here in spirit. And I, I would add that we do also have a new website called nkshop.org uh, where you can buy a 2020 wall calendar, uh, which has got some really very nice photos, uh, excellent photos. Chad, where can I go for Christmas ideas, Christmas gift ideas? <laughs> nkshop.org. Do you have cardboard cutouts of Niels on there as well? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the uh, calendar will make a nice talking point for your office yeah. arouse conversation as colleagues enter where did you get that what as that it mean? has at the uh, at the law firm where i work here in Seoul, where people have walked in and said is that legal i said yes it's not actually from north korea so it's fine yeah i, I think that the the subscription-based model that nk news has is really perfected in this space uh, over the last several years is really the way to go um we're, we're sitting here on october 18th and at the moment, there's this big brouhaha with the NBA in China. And I think that that really, really underscores the massive, massive external pressure that other governments, other actors, powerful individuals, organizations can exert on an organization like NK News. I mean, if China can get the NBA to even consider firing one of its leading executives, imagine what, say, right. a South Korean government could do to an organization like NK News if maybe they're not right. covering the peace process in the right way or, mm. or, or, or something like that. And so the, the subscription-based model provides a shield, provides this kind of layering mm. that allows NK News, allows us to produce independent, great quality journalism that doesn't necessarily – let's say, align always with what the Blue House wants or what the Blue House would like to do. And basically and frankly, because in South Korea, North Korean issue is very politicized. I'm sometimes seriously annoyed with what the Blue House, current Blue House wants. But when I talk to people who are likely to replace them in sooner or later, maybe not in the near future, and I'm talking about the because South Korean conservatives. Right, the Liberty uh, Korea Party. Yes, I feel even more annoyed. I'm even more annoyed mm. because uh, basically the problem is that North Korean issue in South Korea is deeply political, deeply ideological, and you basically have very little freedom of choice. If you are a member of the progressives group, if you are a card-bearing member of some progressive organization, you are basically, you know what you should believe about North Korea. And the same is applicable to the conservatives. Normally, within South Korean uh, society, there is very little space for middle ground. And because the issue is seen polit as political, individuals and political groups are occasionally subjected to outside pressure. So, again, being a foreigner is one of advantages in this game. And, of course, pay, uh, payroll system and a measure of financial independence helps a lot as well. Because South Korean media outlets, unless they're highly specialized and read by, you know, a few dozen or few hundred people, cannot afford to be objective. They have to follow one of the two competing party lines. If I can, if I can say something terribly leftist sympathizing. Please. I would, I think I agree with Andre on that as well, but I would... 
I would just note that I really feel like there's been a, in South Korea at least, there's been a real change in how people discuss and talk about North Korea since the quote-unquote peace process. I've found that... The most recent one? The most recent one. I've found that South Korean media coverage has become a lot better. Remember, when we were in 2015, 2016, it was these random NIS reports of ex-official has been executed and that were picked yeah. up by the media. That was almost every every couple of months we'd have some nonsense story about some general has been executed. And then we'd be embarrassed when they came and out. And then we'd be embarrassed when they came out um, alive, obviously. While there is maybe a reluctance to to cover certain human rights issues, there's a, there's a willingness to explore the North Korean issue in a bit more depth and with a bit more nuance than KCNA maybe there was. KCNA Watch is no longer blocked. Um, if you watch South Korean reporting on North Korean issues, it's much more nuanced. They have a, they have experts who will talk about things not in some sort of black or white terms. They'll talk about things with a great deal more insight. I get the sense there's maybe a lot more freedom to talk about North Korea in a in a more realistic and rational way than there might have been under a conservative administration. Well, let me ask uh, Chad and Oliver directly. Um, have you ever felt uh, overt or covert or indirect pressure from the South Korean government to pursue a, a political line or to leave certain topics alone? I would say no. I would say we, we felt... The only time I can say there were limits on our reporting was when we had a story about a South Korean company that had clothes being made in North Korea. Oh, yeah, we couldn't name not it. A, not in the Kaesong zone, but within North Korea proper. Yeah. Uh, um, we had the photos. We had the photos and stuff, and that was under Park Geun-hye, I remember. Yeah. And we couldn't name the company because of libel laws in South yeah. Korea. Yeah. Huh. That's the only time I've ever felt that, that, that limitation. Being, that being said, I did do a uh, TV interview the other day, and I won't name the broadcaster, but it was South Korean government-funded broadcaster, and I noticed they asked a lot of questions about Moon Jae-in, and some of the questions uh, were, in my opinion, a little absurd. Um, for example, if Kim Jong-un comes to... Uh, Pusan for ASEAN, uh, can Moon Jae-in play a role in reigniting the peace process? And I, I just thought, I started laughing when the question was asked because the prospect of Kim Jong-un coming to uh, Pusan in the next few weeks is, is just so absurd for me that uh, I, I thought it, it was too hypothetical a question. But while I delivered the answer, the journalist in question, their face just started screwing up like in, in that kind of way that looked like it was saying, don't, 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 don't be so frank. Don't say that. <laughs> you know? And then I have a question. In the final release of that interview, did that, your response appear in the final thing? I, I don't watch my interviews, so... Okay, it's worth seeing that. because then that it was, was on then, Korean media, was Then it? we'll know if we've descended <laughs> into a Stalinist hellhole. You had problems as well. With, yeah, with I had occasionally I exercised some minor pressure, but not much. Still, uh, because basically what I'm saying doesn't fit either of two packages. Right. Uh, but having having said that, I probably would disagree, maybe it's my rightest nature. I would disagree with Oliver with, well, yes, probably it's possible... You know, especially when you remember what the, uh, the South Korean media, especially government media, used to say about North Korea in the uh, this you know days of uh, of the first summit just before Singapore, it's absolutely comical. All these stories how North South Koreans in near future go there to climb Myohansan mountains and chatting with the North Korean farmers and about North Korea. And you know that some people were quite uh, annoyed when uh, I was attending some kind of government-sponsored uh, 
activities and said well North Korea has not the slightest intention to surrender nuclear <laughs> weapons mm. uh, people were aff- aff- offended for me it's just a bit like saying you know uh, well winter tends to be cold It's <laughs> something obvious and you've certainly been consistent in that line uh, can we talk a bit about the uh, the recent inter-korean football match that took place in Pyongyang yes I'd like I- I'd love to. <laughs> uh, was that, let me uh, throw in my one football metaphor, was it an own goal by North Korea? I wouldn't go as far as saying it's an own goal. I would say that it was a very brutal match by the sounds of it. Maybe I, I have some strange appreciation for, uh, in the, I, I was very frustrated as a journalist and as someone trying to cover it, we tried to get visas for it. We were trying everything and... In the end, I can say one thing is that they were fair in the sense that North Korean fans couldn't go. South Korean fans couldn't go. It seems most North Korean media couldn't go. Even KCNA weren't there by... Wow. Uh, because the, the video that came out was of a very low quality. It wasn't the normal broadcast quality. So it looks like they just had a very, you know... Was hu- it just a stadium CCTV camera? <laughs> it wasn't that bad. But, you know, the geopolitical circumstances, I think it... It did deliver the message that it was designed to do, and you can appreciate it on that perspective. But from a sporting, for FIFA, are a joke. The FIFA right. president went there, Johnny Baby, basically saying afterwards he was surprised that there was no one there. And yeah, I mean, I, I think the rele- revelation that FIFA is spineless and corrupt. Is not <laughs> is not one that we needed a match in Pyongyang. Well, watch, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. watch those label laws. Um, <laughs> I think it was it was um, one benefit of the match was that we got to saw got to see the star South Korean player Son Heung Min. Son Heung Min, who plays for Tottenham Hotspurs, of course, um, up against the North Korean star player Han Kong Kang Sun, who plays for Juventus now. Um, obviously, there's a big disparity between their value as players. I think Son Heung Min is Min is worth something like. 100 million pounds. Good God, that's a lot of money. And uh, his North Korean counterpart is worth 4 million pounds. You look at what's happening to the pound right now in international currency markets. Well, there you go. Um, And they had a little uh, jostle together. I mean, we just watched a a preview of the match and it seems to have been 90% fouls. Um, The North Koreans seem determined to give their South Korean counterparts a bit of a kicking for whatever reason. Uh, I was just discussing with Peter. I think if you were a North Korean player um, and you see the, the pampered Southerners, you might kind of want to give them a kicking as well. Well, Peter, what do you think North Korea wanted from this match? I don't think they wanted to have the match in the first place uh-huh. by the by the looks of things. Andre, you seem to agree? Well, they're Please. trying to they're trying to minimize all contact with the south right now. They're trying to freeze the Yes, but why? What what is uh what's Kim Jong Un's medium term goal? I I would defer to Andre on this, but I will tell you what he's going to say in advance if you like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, basically they're trying to they're trying to make the South Koreans uncomfortable. They're trying to create an atmosphere of tension on the Korean Peninsula in order to force the Americans to bargain with them on uh, more favorable terms. Uh, so any and all overtures of dialogue and inter-Korean cultural exchange, any anything that could make the mood music on the Korean Peninsula more positive is something they are rejecting right now. Is that and pretty absolutely much Absolutely, it's what I would say. And I would add that they don't want President Moon to feel comfortable. They actually want him to feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And they understand that he cannot deliver anything meaningful. And they are very material boys and girls say about money. And they understand that Munjin is not deliver, going to deliver it because it's against the UN sanctions. And they also understand that for the domestic consumption, President Moon would like to see some kind of look 
you know, good feeling, comforting pictures of some kind of purely symbolic and, from the North Korean point of view, completely meaningless and useless cultural and sporting activities. Like, you know, North Korean and South Koreans dancing together, playing soccer, or attending some conference where they will tell the world how nasty Japanese have always been and will ever be. This reminds me of, of the Pyongyang Peace Olympics. Literally, the Peace Olympics, which is what the South Koreans call them, right? Uh-huh. So are, are you saying that it's entirely a South Korean construction to call them the Peace Olympics. And the North Koreans don't call it like that at all. They don't care to call it like that. And in fact, they would rather their their participation in the Olympics be simply, you know, we were there trying to win a medal. No. I think that back then, they needed Olympics to create an environment to get Americans to the negotiation table mm. and to start talking about the real business. For the North Koreans, all the symbolic activities are of secondary value or maybe even slightly harmful. However, they are willing to play the game if it's a necessary step uh, to start real discussion of the real things which really matter. Things of money and military security, and they understood that it was necessary. Now it's not necessary, because if they let South Koreans to play these non-monetary games, uh, President Moon will get some increase in domestic support. Mm. He will sell it as a sign of his diplomatic success, and he will feel comfortable. And they don't want him to become feel comfortable. They want to create a sense of mild tension on the Korean Peninsula, and they want South Korean leadership to be uncomfortable and working hard to do something about economic sanctions. I have a question question on that. Um, Would it not, in that case, be in North Korea's interest to butter up the South Koreans as much as possible? No. No, but if we're in a situation where there's nothing going on with the US, we had a year of of hearing that Moon Jae-in was going to upend the alliance and he was going to make a big deal with North Korea and that he was going to do X, Y, and Z, open Kaesong. Surely it's in the North Koreans' interest to, if, if decoupling is really something that's on North Korea's agenda, would it not make sense for North Korea to treat South Korea very nicely while being hostile towards the US and say, look, comrades, you're our compatriots in the South. We can do all these things together without the US. Isn't, would that not make more sense than simply to drive a wedge between the South yeah. Koreans and to the, actually and the Americans? drive a wedge? Yeah, why, why not? In theory, it makes sense, but in practice, sorry, just to interject, this is a very rare moment. We have a bottle of red North Korean wine, which I I didn't even know that North Korea had vineyards. Where, where is this vineyard from? This is, it is uh, Wasan. Wasan, where is that? Where is that? Um, Anyone? You can take photos. Where, where's yeah. our North Korean geography expert when we need her? This this is a new a it's new a hurt, uh, so she's not here. this is a oh, new trend to have right. North Korean wine. But I was expecting a cork, and I found a plastic. Oh, it's a screw top. <laughs> Never mind. Oh, it's a stopper. Oh, it's good. Oh, it's very no, good. it's a plastic cork. Jeez. But, uh, but Andre, to come back to Oliver's question, why not? Why not go for uh, you know sort of pan-Korean unity uh, against the Americans? Let me see if I can guess Andre's response again. Actually, Wasan seems to be a, a district in Pyongyang. So, oh, uh, a vineyard in Pyongyang. Well, it makes some. It makes it's possible, I guess. Um, yeah, let me just uh, predict Andre's response again, which is basically the North Koreans see the South Koreans as cheapskates. Uh, South Korea is one of the richest countries in the world, has you know extremely advanced economy, and the South Koreans want to create new mood music and they won't give the, they won't give the North Koreans any money in the process once again they don't need mood music because it's giving pres- uh, presence 
to President Moon in exchange for nothing. They don't want to give him presents. And look at uh, South Korean diplomacy in general. Uh, the South Korean government is very happy to spend money on diplomacy uh, in other parts of the world if it thinks that uh, you know spending this money will get a good return uh, for its companies, for its uh, people abroad, etc. You know, spend money is in you know promise joint development funds or whatever it is. You know, no, nothing nothing seedy or weird. But I, I, what I, what I'm basically saying, what I'm trying to say here is that the South Koreans are doing giving nothing to the North Koreans right now, and they expect photo ops in return. Photo ops which are good for the Moon administration, good for the ruling party, and do nothing for Kim Jong Un at all. And this idea of a decoupling thing, just to get onto that. Point quickly. In theory, it makes sense. But the South Koreans and the Americans are lips and teeth, to steal Mao Zedong's expression oh. for the Sino North Korean relationship for a moment here. L- look, at, look at what they're doing right now. As in, uh, I mean, I this is partially my point that it, su- it suggests this, this slightly fear mongering reports when Moon Jae in first became president that there would be a decoupling have been slightly. I guess, proven wrong. Moon has never tried to cancel military drills with the United States, so far as I know. Trump has, but Moon has never done that. Um, and in spite of that uh, mil- uh, that North-South military agreement signed last September, and in spite of the Pyongyang summit, um, Moon uh, allowed opera- uh, drills to go ahead this year. Before I move on to the next topic, Andre, just a quick yes or no. Is North Korea now, in October 2019, more or less playing by the same playbook that they used in 2017? I think there are not quite. There are a few changes. Probably they're less afraid of the United States because they saw what is happening or as a not happening in the Middle East. And they have good reasons to see uh, Donald Trump as a paper tiger. A lot of talk, no work. Second, they have China behind their back. It's a new development. It began to change, say, basically in spring. Uh, Peter would probably suggest January. Maybe no, he's no, no, right. Earlier, earlier. November, December 2017. 17. I mean, just look at the market price data. It didn't start in the new year at all. Like, the oil price immediately it starts to uh, go back down, I think, in December 2017 or November, December time. Uh, but at any way, for me, obvious turning point was the declaration of the trade war on China by the United States. And at any rate, now North Koreans understand that China is behind their back, which is a normal situation. China is probably not going to pay for their economic miracle, but they will provide them with basic subsistence, survival level of support. And yeah, when, when you look at how much China invests in Africa... Uh, which is a very, very long way away, yes. you you, re- you start to realize that the contextual aid it gives to North Korea is, is just nothing. Like, it's sounds It's small change. And not only that, they invest in massive uh, special economic zones in Africa too. And look at the activity you see in North Korean SECs by Chinese companies. It's minuscule. Going back to that thing though on, uh, on the Sino-North Korean relationship, I'm not so sure. I think that's an interesting point about uh, the whole thing that's going on in Syria. I, you know, uh, Trump is a paper tiger who is not interested in sustaining... Tomorrow, a second phrase from Mao. Right. Uh, but at the same time, you also to see the warming in the uh, uh, in the Sino-US relationship right now. If they can find a way out of this trade war, and it looks like the Trump administration is now looking for an exit option with mm. the trade war. And at the very same time, if you have that exit at the same or the similar time to North Korea, then engaging then they're in, in trouble. They're in serious trouble. Yes. If, they, if they test not, if they test ICBMs or nuclear weapons, the, the Trump administration calls Jong Nanhai, you know where Xi Jinping is, and says, "We can't accept this. Mm. We want more sanctions." And but what do the Chinese do? To get to get more sanctions, you do need all P five countries to to sign off on them. And I could imagine 
potentially certain countries on the P5, such as Russia, making a, a valid point, which is that sanctions technically are pretty much at the upper ceiling in terms of what can be done from a UN Security Council perspective that doesn't go against the grain of what UN sanctions are supposed to be about, which is targeted and not uh, an economic blockade. And there could be uh, a valid argument that, you know, China always likes to say that, that countries should meet in the middle. And I actually would agree with China in, in, in a lot of senses, because I think both the US and North Korea are doing bad, very badly at meeting in the middle in terms of negotiations. Potentially that, that vote and, and support for more um, UNSC measures might not be as, as easy as we would assume, unless it was a seriously provocative an alternative approach, though, is not more sanctions, but actual implementation. And if there's one yeah. thing that's been lacking on UNSC san- sanctions thus far is enforcement, at least if you look at the oil price, you look at the price of food, etc. If the Chinese turn off the aid taps, cut tourism uh, to North Korea, and most importantly, I think, uh, for an industrial economy, a primitive but nonetheless industrial economy like North Korea, if they enforce the oil sanctions. And I'm not I'm not saying the Chinese government is necessarily not enforcing the oil sanctions. I'm just saying that certain people inside China are allowed or ignored when they violate those sanctions. Stephanie Klein Albright, she wrote a fantastic column at 38 North the other day, former US uh-huh. mem- member of the panel of experts on North Korea at the United Nations, uh, which basically outlined, um, gave, provided a couple of conclusions. One is that there is stasis at the UN Security Council when it comes to actually designating entities that have manifestly been proven to be violating sanctions. And then the other aspect of it is is that the implementation is is just flatlining. Um, and even Josh Stanton, um, who some of our listeners may be aware of. One free big, career. Big uh, advocate for sanctions. He even said on Twitter that, you know, he's sanctions do have a half-life. We've, we've kind of missed the window of opportunity to expect results from sanctions pressure. I find her analysis compelling, and I think it was a very, very interesting and well-written piece. But I do think that if the Chinese wish to impose unilateral sanctions on North Korea in uh, in in response to uh, North Korean uh, provocations, they can, and they did in 2017. Oh. And that could have a very, very serious impact in the North Korea Yeah, because they're making themselves more vulnerable by just relying on... This is what I wonder about the Plan B for next year. North Korea's Plan yeah, B. Yeah, because, yes. I mean, w- what is it? I mean... My sense is it's just leaning on Russia and China more and probably testing below what they judge to be the threshold of Trump's red lines. So a space launch could be ambiguous enough uh, to fall within that scope. But um, I mean, I, I don't see any reason why North Korea couldn't test beyond Trump's red lines. Yeah, I mean, year. his red lines have been Those red lines will change in Those red lines, well, as that's we the thing. In Syria. The red lines change. Um, Trump is also facing a huge amount of political and domestic pressure at the moment. I, it's safe to say that in 2020, Trump's focus will not be on North Korea. Um, and I think if North Korea can say, well, look, diplomacy has failed, we'll return to some kind of maybe regular ICBM, regular nuclear testing. Um, I'm not sure about nuclear testing just because... China doesn't like it. I don't really see any any way to, to pressure North Korea now. As Professor Lankov wrote in his most recent column for NK News, I, the North Koreans are in a position now where they can play hardball and they say, well, we the, first of all, the pressure from sanctions is off. Second of all, the ability of the United States to punish us if we do step over that red line is so limited now. I, d- I don't really see a, 
situation where they can they can be pressured into taking the I don't know taking the pressure off okay i'm gonna really, have to draw a red line under that topic because now a lot of time together is almost up today and i want to talk about two at least two more topics before we go uh, i want to throw first of all to james fretwell uh, i want to hear a bit about what you're uh, researching and what you what you do here for us at nk news because i know first of all and listeners will know because i thank you each week at the end of the podcast uh, that you're a great help to me in practical terms in uh, uh, setting up and recording this stuff and then getting the uh, the raw data across to uh, Arius, who cuts out all the the dross and turns out only pure pure homespun fine gold for each episode of the podcast. But what else are you doing for us here at NK News, and what are you researching at Yonsei? Well, I started working at NK News as assistant editor in June. Before I was I was a, an avid reader of NK News and a frequent listener of the podcast. So it's uh, quite strange to actually <laughs> be appearing now on the uh, podcast. Yeah, so I'm I'm helping Oliver out um, editing articles, learning the uh, the trade of journalism, and I'm also uh, doing my master's degree at Yonsei Graduate School in Korean history with a focus on North Korean history. So you recently came up with a topic for your thesis, did you not? I did. Oh, yes. come on, share, <laughs> share it with us now. What's the topic? Well, it has changed quite a bit, but I will now be doing um, looking at the different uh, how perspectives of North Korea um, changed over time in the U.S. Um, by looking at newspapers and also how uh, perceptions of the DPRK. Uh, sorry, how perceptions of the US changed in North Korea through also looking at um, newspapers like the Nordong Shinmun. So I think that will be very interesting, especially from the US side. You know, when did the US stop thinking of North Korea simply as a, a, a puppet state mm. of the Soviet Union and China? When did they start um, more thinking of them as uh, an irritating um non-aligned country and also when did they start thinking of them as a nuclear threat so i think those are some of the 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 big stages that i will be examining in my thesis and what's the start and, and finish point of the time period that you're looking at probably well i i would think up until around 94 i would say i mean around the, f- the first nuclear crisis yeah but that's also when you know Kim Il-sung dies dies, soon after the Soviet Union collapses. It's a really big turning point in North Korean history. And just a few months before collision in Korea, which we all know is the (laughs) world's largest ever pro wrestling event. How (laughs) that the replay a stadium, 150,000 people gathered to watch Antonio Inoki beat uh, Ric Flair. Yeah, that's what the inter-Korean football match could have been like. It could have been, exactly. It could have been a replay. (laughs) I heard there was a lot of fouling, so it sounds like it was quite similar. There's a book called Collision in Korea by one of the WCW managers. Uh, That would be... uh, Eric Bischoff, I yes. believe, the uh, former owner slash CEO of CW. Uh, good friend of Trump. Yeah, he, he had a chapter uh, which mentioned Muhammad Ali's comments about the North Koreans and how ridiculous their 
treatment of the visiting uh, sportsman was, which was uh, it was too foul to to repeat. I think I've got to get that book and read that <laughs> chapter. I can't believe I haven't read it yet. Uh, now I would like also uh, thank you, James, first of all, and good luck with that uh, that thesis. When is it due? Oh, I, I hope I'm graduating in the summer 2020. All right, you've got a few months to put that <laughs> writing together yet. <laughs> could I could I interject with Please. a quick wine review? This is a uh, a fine uh, what would we call it Chardonnay or yeah? What does it feel like? It, it it's like a dessert wine a bit. Can I have can I have yeah. a bit just to? I would I would say this is the wine that when you're a student yeah and, and uh, you only have and you have to go to a party and you only have ten pounds and you need to obviously buy tobacco to go to this party and then you try and maximize your money so you find at the very bottom at the very back of the of the off license you find a wine for two pound fifty this is that wine. Is this the kangaroo tail of North Korea? I would say, I'm not a wine specialist, but I would say it's much better than I expected. (laughs) Uh, Because the first time I tried a North Korean wine was 35 years ago. And for a long time, it was completely undrinkable. Right now, I would say it's a low, very low quality European level. Okay, I would say it would make a very nice sangria. That's why. Ah, yeah. or, or a glue vine. Or a glue vine, yeah. I'd cook it up with some cinnamon, some orange fact, peel. As a matter of fact, we made it, you know, we used it for Glint wine in 84, 85. That's what order contracts and uh, marketized uh, retail system gets you. You know, you gotta, you got to compete for uh, consumers oh, and uh, consumer dollar. <laughs> Sorry, consu- consumer one. Arius, what do you think of the wine? You know, I, I was actually, I'm going to uh, offer a much more uh, sanguine perspective. I actually, Sangria? Yeah, 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 there you go. <laughs> I actually think it, it, it's very good. And I, I'm tempted to actually uh, offer my Korean, my South Korean parents-in-law a bottle if I could somehow procure one, I think they'd really get a kick out of it. Is Amazon sending crates out at, at the moment or uh, is that next year? I would say if you want to please the Korean in-laws, you got to get the, the North Korean liquor. That's a good, you know, but the where, wine is... Where on earth are they growing these? Like, I was in Bordeaux, I, I lived in Bordeaux for a year and one thing you learn about vineyards is that if there's an icy winter, the vineyard will die. Yeah. And no, well, they're growing them in greenhouses. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it says here, Wasan is apparently in Pyongyang. Yeah. No, it's not in greenhouses in Pyongyang. Compared to, uh, to the uh, uh, North Korean vines I have tried before, it's vi- way above, which is another proof of something which is not widely understood. Well, our listeners do understand because they listen to us. Yes. <laughs> uh, but majority doesn't quite understand that life in North Korea is getting better. It's also Maybe been... not last year or two because of sanctions, but it has been steady improvement over the last 10 years. I mean, it's also we... better than the uh, Jillo red wine produced here in South Korea oh, back in 1996. By the way, it's undrinkable. Yes. This is drinkable wine. That's right. I would it's say for, for, listeners, for listeners who are familiar with a certain Scottish um, fortified wine um, called uh, Buckfast, that's it. Tastes oh, like Buckfast. Oh, Can we do a Michael Barbaro impression before we finish? It tastes like Buckfast. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, the, the last thing I'd like to talk about before we reach the end of our lot of time today is uh, Arius. Now, normally you are at very much at the back end of uh, the podcast, you mm. know, taking out all the, uh, the the bodily functions, noises, and the uh, awkward silences and uh, sentence restarts. But swear words. You, you, uh, not uh, swear words. Not everybody knows uh, that you produce your own podcast, don't you? 
Not just produce, but I also host the Settlers of Soul podcast at www.settlersofsoul.com. If and a very I may. good podcast it is too. Thank you. I have, uh, I have, I've tried to get uh, the glorious host Jack Wetzlute on the pod. So I promise it'll be soon. It, it, it will be soon. So uh, listeners, it, look out for that. In due course, a Korean history uh, inside joke there. <laughs> I got that. I got yeah, that one. Someone got one. I got it. Um, yeah, you know. Hello, Potsdam. Well, you know, I since I have the opportunity, I have a, a, a mic in front of me. It, it's been really incredible to see uh, where the podcast has gone over the last 100 episodes. I, I, I remember this was almost two years ago now yeah. that uh, Mr. O'Carroll, uh, the dear leader, as we call him here at the, at the office, uh, he had asked me. He had asked me to, uh, you know, see if I would be in, involved in the podcast in in some way. I actually, I don't think that either of us had a, a really clear picture of what that involvement would be. And credit to him that he was willing to take a chance on me, really, because we didn't know each other that well at the time. I didn't know him. Of course, I, I read NK News uh, quite a bit as, as somebody who's very interested uh, in, in NK News. Get it? Um, but... <laughs> I, I, we didn't really know hmm. where the podcast was was going, right? We 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 knew that we had a great host, Mr. Zwetslow Dan. Thank we you. knew that we we had uh, content that people clearly wanted to hear. That 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 was evidenced by the, the traffic on our website, what what people are clicking on, the, the feedback that we've gotten from the website. As over the last you know hundred episodes, I, I I can clearly say we found an identity for the podcast. For me, I love being able to be on the back end because I get to listen to all of these interviews in the raw kind of uncut uncut format right so i get all of it and we're talking to some just incredibly smart lucid individuals that that have been following this issue for decades and so i i really just i want to take this opportunity to thank everybody here for allowing me to be part of this experience and I, I'm just so excited to see what the next 100 episodes have in store well thanks Harris now I hope you're keeping all these uh, off cuts for a future Too Hot for TV episode I've got 90 minutes of ums just ums oh that's no, that's very good uh, now Andre you, do you remember you were actually our first guest in episode yes. 1 yes uh, and I believe one of your first guests too correct Settlers of Soul. You have not been on my podcast yet, Dr. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was Peter, yes. No, it was no, Peter. It was Peter. Peter. It was Peter. It was your alter ego. It was, you. Like it was recorded in my office. Ah, that's why. And yeah. this is... Yeah. You really are uh, two minds in, well, hang on, one mind and two bodies, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, amazing. occasionally. Uh, no, I completely disagree. The development of the market economy began in the late 1980s. It was definitely the early 1990s. Definitely the late 80s. Definitely the late 80s. Definitely the late 80s. I just want to ask you, Andre, if you can remember when we did our first episode, we didn't have any of this uh, sound cancelling. What do we call What's the technical buffling. term for this? Uh, buff, buffling? Buffering? Uh, buffering? Marshmallow walls, I think, is the uh, the technical term. And so it sounded like, uh, I think Arius wrote in his show notes, that it sounded like we were talking inside of a bathroom. Uh, And so hopefully our audio quality has improved a little bit since then. I know know we're not as as extremely polished as some of these Hollywood uh, think tanks. Well, the New York Times Daily podcast. Hollywood think tanks. Well, Hollywood style audio. (laughs) Is that a thing? Uh, Uh, Hello out there to Michael... Barbaro, if you're listening to us, ours is a bit more organic. I, I've got a question. <laughs> I've got a question for Jacko. Um, Please, what's been your favourite episode and why? 
Oh, gosh. Um, that, now, you've really put me on the spot there. Uh, I want to say that my episode with Taeyong Ho, in which it was just the two of us huddled inside the marshmallow wall. With armed security. With, with the armed security standing right outside. That was a particular uh, favorite of mine. I really enjoyed that, and, and it could have gone on much longer. But also, I enjoyed doing the uh, the live Skype interviews with uh, with Pyongyang, with both um, uh, the wife of the Pakistani ambassador, uh, Ambreen uh, Mustafa. She was great. And also... Uh, the Syri- current Syrian ambassador to Pyongyang. That was a really interesting experience too, talking ah. live to somebody in Pyongyang uh, about what was going on up there. That, that, there are a couple of uh, standout memories. But of course, as every good host has to say, uh, every episode was memorable in its own way. You're all my favorites. You're, uh, you love me. Wait, no, that's the wrong speech. Uh, Thank you. I want to thank you all, everybody, uh, for coming today. We've already uh, said silently goodbye to uh, Colin uh, Zwicka, who uh, left us for a dinner appointment, and uh, James, who's off doing something else. But thanks to everybody for joining us today. And uh, listeners out there, please keep listening and help us to make it to episode 200 by becoming subscribers, loyal and faithful subscribers, to nknews.org. Uh, if you're already an nknews.org subscriber, consider upgrading to NK Pro And help the North Korean vineyard yards um i think they'll be doing subscription deliveries as soon as ofac releases the designations on relevant bodies and organs they'll be sending drones across the demilitarized zone with uh, with boxes of these uh, you know, boxes of 12 of these bottles at a time won't crates they? crates crates yeah. wooden barrels barrels uh, yeah or yeah, barrels is good too. and uh, uh, for arius also please consider subscribing to settlersofsoul.com it's a great podcast what are you up to now episode 30 Gosh, it's going to be 30 here pretty soon. That's right. Um, and uh, as I said, uh, Mr. Jacko will hopefully be on the podcast soon. So if you are interested in hearing uh, Jacko kind of on the other side of the mic, as you you know, you heard in our previous episode, the special uh, with uh, with Richard Baker, uh, absolutely uh, do check out Settlers of Soul. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and keep listening. Signing off for now, it's Mr. Jacko. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.